the talk this evening is uh, called The Four Noble Tasks. And I'd like to start with a, a, a thought experiment. Some of you might see that I'm reading my notes from this device. It's called an iPad. Now, imagine in some hypothetical future, let's say in a hundred years from now, or longer, someone has a, an, exam, uh, an iPad, like this one, and also still has a rather dog-eared copy of How to Use the iPad, a book probably bought at an airport or a <coughs> bookstore, um, great big thick manual on how to use an iPad. But in this hypothetical future point, nobody uses iPads anymore. And it's a, a bit of a relic, not really very much understood. And all they have is this uh, how to use the iPad book. And it's believed that this book is somehow um, uh, contains um, a, a description of what this funny machine is. And by that point in the future, um, let, let's say the technology has all been forgotten, um, this has become a somewhat of a magical object. They shake it around, there's no moving parts. You press a button, it starts doing things. And one might imagine, in fact, that it's so wondrous that it must be animated by some kind of spirit. And it's possible, perhaps, if this object has been preserved in a temple-like building, um, this spirit, this animating spirit of this machine, this formless, etheric stuff, has taken on the name Jobs. <laughs> and there's a belief has developed that this um, device, the iPad, um, exists only in the relative conventional world. But the ultimate truth, the true iPad, exists in the animating spirit of Jobs. This uh, divine being um, who somehow brings this device to life. Now, the reason I've told that rather silly story is because it might give us a clue as to how we could understand uh, the Pali Canon, which is about seven or 8,000 pages in English translation. Again, it's something that is revered, uh, something that people worship in temples. And um, it too um, has been rather um, neglected in some sense. Nobody quite knows what it's all about. And it's thought to perhaps provide us with um, an account, a description of what human life 
um, really is. And we might even imagine that it's called Life, a user's manual, which is actually the name of a novel by Georges Perec, very strange postmodern novel. But again, it's been forgotten that this is um, a book of instructions to do something with your life, and it has come to be seen as a sacred text that provides us with a, an accurate description of the nature of reality. Now, to some extent, an instruction manual will give us some sense as to what the object is. The instruction manual for the iPad will tell us some things about the iPad. But the things it will tell us, things we need to know, are only of importance because that information helps us to understand what the thing is used for. And I think the same can be said also about the Pali Canon. It does provide an account, to some extent, of what human life is. It talks, for example, of the five aggregates and the six senses and so forth and so on. But again, the reason it does that is only because it's been found to be useful to consider those ideas that the human being is composed of matter and feelings and perceptions and inclinations and consciousness because that helps us to somehow put into practice a series of meditations or reflections that can help us to um, find out what this life is for. Not what this life is, but what we can do with it. What kind of goals, what kind of values it might be capable of realizing. Now, in the same way that over time, I feel that these classical Buddhist teachings, not just those in the Pali Canon, but in other traditions too, have tended to become seen more and more as descriptions of the nature of reality, let's say. In the same way, we find that uh, the Buddha has become transformed from a human being like ourselves into a rather godlike um, character who's omniscient, who has all sorts of extraordinary physical attributes, um, who is perfect in all respects. In other words, um, the human being of the teacher has turned into that of a god or something very similar to a god. Um, we can say the, see the same thing with um, the way in which uh, Jesus as depicted, say, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke and Matthew, who's a very human figure, within about two or three hundred years, has been um, elevated to um, the Christ, who is of one substance with God. And the, the, the human aspect of Jesus has somehow 
been lost. And instead of a teaching which is very much about how to live in this world, we find that Christianity has been replaced by um, church dogma. And I think a very similar process occurs with the Buddha. He starts out, in fact, as plain Mr. Gautama. I'm not joking. The, um, the, although we say the Buddha all the time, I say it, in the Pali Canon, he's never referred to by that name. Uh, he's, when he's referred to um, uh, you know, as, as a, one of the characters in this, the various teaching stories, he's called Bogotama. This is usually translated as Master Gautama. But actually the word Bo is just the ordinary expression for Mr. And you also find in Pali another expression, Bovadin, which means someone who uses the word Mr. And it refers to a Brahmin priest. And a Brahmin priest is considered to be somewhat haughty and he refers to other people as Mr. So curiously, um, the, although we are in the habit of using the word the Buddha, the text actually says Mr. Gautama. I learned this in a recent anthology of Pali translations by Rupert Gethin, published by Oxford University Press, I think. It's a very good anthology. And he points this out and then he says, but of course, we can't call him Mr. Gautama. <laughs> and I said, well, why not? It seems as though um, the Buddha, Mr. Gautama, um, deliberately chose uh, an epithet that was not honorific. And yet it's not long before um, the other terms that are used about him begin to appear. He's called the Bhagawant or the Tathagata. Now, the Bhagawant means the Lord, and it's almost invariably translated in English um, translations as the Blessed One, which frankly makes me cringe slightly. Um, the word Bhagawant actually just means uh, the teacher. It's the honorific expression in India, even today, for a spiritual teacher, Bhagawan. Tathagata is more compli complicated, but it's basically his way of talking about himself. Or let's say it's the canon's way of um, not having him use the word I. That's another story. So what we notice in the evolution of these uh, teachings and the evolution of the figures who gave these teachings is a progressive shift from practical instruction to metaphysical and uh, religious doctrine and dogma on the one hand, which is mirrored by a development from a human person, Mr. Gautama or Jesus of Nazareth, into the Blessed One or the Christ uh, or th who is identical to God. All of this, I think, is telling us something rather um, striking about the human 
tendency to want gods. The human tendency to seek the consolations of religion and religious belief and our willingness to put us under the authority of um, people in power who somehow understand the reality, the ultimate reality taught in these texts and are, as it were, the living representatives of the Christ or the Buddha on earth today. Now all of that is really a preamble to um, what I said in my previous talk was uh, about the nature of secular Buddhism as I understand it. And I said that it's, it's not an attempt to modify a pre-existing form of Buddhism into some new kind of configuration, but actually it's trying to reconfigure the core elements of the Dharma itself. In other words, to actually try to get back to the source material and also a clear understanding, as, or as clear as we can have, of the figure of Mr. Gautama and try to understand how what he taught in his time, his seculum, could perhaps also speak very much to our condition today. And the first step in this process, I feel, is to make a shift in our thinking from considering the Dharma to be a description of reality to thinking of it as being um, a set of instructions to restore the canon to its original um, purpose, I would argue, as an instruction manual, life, a user's manual. Now let's try to actually give a concrete example of what that might mean. And I'd like to start by going back to what's probably the most central of, of all Buddhist teachings, and that is that of the Four Noble Truths. You only have to open any introductory book on Buddhism, and you will find, usually on, in the first few pages, um, a presentation of the Four Noble Truths. And I'm sure most of you are completely familiar with that, and you take it possibly for granted that that's the basic statement of Buddhist doctrine. But look at how the Four Noble Truths are presented. They're presented as propositions. In other words, they're presented in the form of sentences with a subject, a verb, and an object. Life is suffering. First Noble Truth. Second Noble Truth. The origin of suffering is craving. Third Noble Truth. The cessation of craving is the cessation of suffering. Fourth Noble Truth. The Noble Eightfold Path leads to the cessation of suffering. I'm sure we're all familiar with that. Or at least we've read it once or twice, even if we don't remember all four word for word. Now, as soon as the uh, Buddhist teaching is presented in that way, 
the reader of that introduction to Buddhism is challenged to ask him or herself, well, is that true or not? Is it true that life is suffering? Like someone brought this up the other day in one of our groups down in the dining hall. Isn't that rather pessimistic? Life is suffering? And so you immediately start with the presumption that Buddhism is about um, believing certain statements to be true, certain doctrines to be true, and to be a Buddhist means you accept that those four propositions actually correspond to the nature of reality itself. So this is what I mean by a descriptive uh, basis for Buddhist practice. It basically relies upon um, adopting certain beliefs. I believe that <coughs> life is suffering. I believe that craving is the origin of suffering, and so on. Now, we have a problem here. A recent study by a philologist called Mr. K.R. Norman, who's probably one of the world's leading experts on the Pali language, um, has shown quite convincingly that in the earliest version of the, the first discourse, which introduces the Four Noble Truths for the first time in Buddhism, the word noble truth did not occur. Uh, I'm not going get, to get into the argument here. It has to do with incongruent case endings and tricky stuff like that. But it's fairly indisputable that at least in the case of that one discourse, the word noble truth did not appear. It was added in later. Now, this suggests at least the possibility that the Buddha was not actually interested in presenting us with the truth. The Buddha was actually interested in doing something else altogether. Another parallel to this um, concerns a doctrine of the two truths, which is again widespread in all schools of Buddhism, the doctrine of the ultimate truth and the conventional truth, sometimes translated as the absolute truth and the relative truth, and whether it's Theravada Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, this is an absolutely key component of the discourse, of how they speak and explain the teachings. But nowhere in the discourses of the Pali Canon or in the monastic training texts does the Buddha use the word ultimate truth or relative truth. Not once. So in other words, it's possible that at the beginning the word truth, as in noble truth, wasn't used, and the word truth, as in ultimate or relative truth, wasn't used. But both of those doctrines have become utterly central to Buddhism as a belief system, as a doctrinal system. In fact, just the other day, um, I happened to have the Sangyutta Nikaya, which is one of the longest co collections of suttas in the canon, on my iPad. 
and it enables me to be able to run a search through the whole thing. So I put in the word truth to see how many times it occurred. Most of the occurrences, there are about 503 occurrences of the word truth and there's about 1300 pages. Most of the occurrences, probably 80%, were within the context of first noble truth, second noble truth, third noble truth. So put that aside. Nearly all the other usages, when the word truth was used, referred to the virtue of telling the truth, as opposed to telling lies. In other words, the word satcha, truth, is used, but in a purely moral sense. The Buddha praises those who tell the truth. It comes down to something as simple as that. In other words, it's a virtue, it's something that you do, it's a, it's, a, it's a quality of your speech, it's an ethical action, it's got nothing to do with the nature of reality. So, if these four are not truths, then what are they? <laughs> All we can say with any certainty, because we don't have a copy of the earliest form of this text, it hasn't come down to us. We can't know for certain what was in that text. All we can say with any confidence is that the Buddha spoke of the four. We don't have to add anything onto that. Now the four are in fact often referred to in the suttas and in later Buddhist commentarial texts by four terms which are dukkha we usually translate as suffering. Samudaya, which means the arising. Niroda, which means the ceasing. And Maga, which means the path. That's the shorthand for the four. Dukkha, no, suffering, the arising, the ceasing the path. They are the four. Now I wonder if we couldn't consider these in this attempt to reconfigure the core ideas of the Dhamma itself as a bit like the four nucleobases of DNA. There are four nucleobases, cytosine, guanine, adenine and thymine. And DNA is, is the nucleic acid that is made up of those four bases. So all of organic life that we know it is a combination of those four bases that are found in DNA. Everything from the simplest amoeba or plant to us and elephants and bonobo chimps, it's all made up of DNA which is composed of these four elements. I wonder if that's not a helpful metaphor in thinking of dukkha, the arising, the ceasing, the path, are, as it were, the basic um, elements that can be configured into traditional Buddhist doctrine on the one hand from the Indian tradition, but also would be those elements that would help give rise to um, 
a secular Buddhism. So secular Buddhism wouldn't be a modification of something that's already in place, but it would be a reconfiguration of these four primary elements. Now, when we read the first discourse of the Buddha, we find, in fact, a very important clue as to how we might reconfigure these bases, these elements. And that is to think of them as tasks. In other words, each of these four are things or tasks to be recognized, to be performed, and to be accomplished. They're not doctrines to be believed. They're pragmatic rather than dogmatic. In other words, dukkha is to, be some, is to be fully known. The arising, which is understood as the grasping and the craving that arises, this is to be let go of. The ceasing means to experience the ceasing of that craving and grasping, that stopping. And the path is something to be brought into being, something to be cultivated, something to be created. Now this is very much in line, I feel, with um, the Buddha's own emphasis on his teaching as being therapeutic. Um, there's this famous parable we have about the arrow. It appears in the Majjhima Nikaya. And it concerns a man called Malunkyaputta, who comes to the Buddha and says, I will not practice the Dharma that you teach until you tell me whether the universe is infinite, the universe is um, beginning, has a beginning or an end, it's finite, it's infinite, whether the mind and the body are the same, whether the mind and the body are different, whether we're born after death or not. And I'm, until you answer those questions, I'm not going to take what you say seriously. And the Buddha says, well, imagine a man who's been shot by an arrow and he's lying on the ground, bleeding to death, and his friends bring along a doctor to take the arrow out. But the man says, I won't let you take the arrow out until I know the name of the man who shot it, until I know where, what city or town or village that man lived in, until I know whether it was a crossbow or a longbow, until I know whether the feathers on the arrow were from a stork or a heron or a crow or a peacock. And it, the, the, you know, it's teased out ad absurdum. And the Buddha says, well, that person could still be trying to get this information, and meanwhile he would die. And in the same way, if um, uh, you insist on having answers to all these big metaphysical questions before you actually practice this teaching, well, you can, be, you can continue inquiring into these things, and meanwhile you will die without ever getting round to putting it into practice. And then he says, actually, in the latter part of the same text, he says, I make no declaration at all about such things. I'm not interested in the big questions, in the nature of reality. What do I teach, though? He says, I teach the four. In the text it says noble truths, but we now have permission, perhaps, to say just the four, the four tasks. That's what I 
teach. So in some ways, what I'm interested in doing, and I admit that this is perhaps arrogant, is to, is to think of, of, of rewriting the operating system, now we're on to computer metaphors, of the Dharma, rather than um, doing new versions of the software programs that are already running. So if you modify Tibetan Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, um, you might come up with a rather more user-friendly form of doing it, but you'd still be running them on the operating system of ancient Indian cosmology with belief in rebirth and karmic consequences and different realms of existence, which we might call Buddhism 1.0. <coughs> But if we take these four elements, dukkha, arising, ceasing, and path, and reconfigure them, rewrite them, we might come up with Buddhism 2.0, on which we can build a uh, practice of the Dharma that's rooted in the earliest canonical ideas, but is based on a practice rather than a belief. It's based on doing something rather than believing something. And that, I would suggest, might be how a secular Buddhism might emerge, which is not just a reconfiguring of a pre-existent Buddhist tradition. Now, again, I feel the, um, uh, the ground for this we find in the Buddha's first discourse itself, which is called the, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the discourse of setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. And let me uh, read you the penultimate paragraph, which in a sense is the conclusion, or one of the key conclusions of the text, where the Buddha says, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways, in other words, about the twelve aspects of the four, did I claim to have had such awakening? Okay, so this paragraph is important because in it the Buddha explains what he means by awakening or what we often call enlightenment. I prefer the term awakening. It's more literally correct. So awakening is certainly here not described as some breakthrough to a single ultimate reality, but in fact has to do with um, being clear about the twelve aspects of the four. The four, remember, dukkha, the arising, the ceasing, the path. So what are these twelve aspects? 
Okay, to understand that we have to go to the, pr the preceding paragraph of the text which says, such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is the arising of craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is the ceasing of craving. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. And such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. And so there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. Now, you'll notice that for each of the four, there are three qualifications. Such is dukkha, recognition. It can be fully known. There's something you can do about it. It has been fully known. That which can be done about it has been done. Remember, it's the Buddha speaking. So his awakening is an awakening that, co that comes from having fully known dukkha, having let go of craving, having experienced the stopping of craving, and having cultivated a path, which he explains is the Eightfold Path that we mentioned before. So this is a, an understanding of awakening quite explicitly as a process, as a series of actions, a series of tasks. And I would suggest that each task is the precondition for the one that follows. That by fully knowing dukkha, that puts us in a position where our grasping and craving, etc., begin to fall away. When our craving and grasping begin to fall away, that sets in train the possibility of their coming to a stop, at least temporarily. And when they come to a stop, that opens up the possibility of living in this world from another perspective altogether. And that's the perspective of the Eightfold Path, a perspective of a full human flourishing. So in fact, all four of these, all these four tasks are a sequence of actions. They are things that we do, and it is really rather irrelevant to then get caught up in issues of dogma, such as life is suffering, the origin of suffering is craving, that's simply irrelevant. It's not necessary to somehow dispute those claims. We simply don't need to have them in the first place. We can think of this practice as one that is um, simply, well simply, is, is entirely a matter of engaging in certain practices and, hopefully, experiencing the fruits of those practices. Now, we can summarize this process in the acronym ELSA. 
E-L-S-A. Embrace dukkha. Let go of grasping. Stop grasping. Or literally, experience the stopping of grasping. And then act. In other words, create and cultivate a way of life in this world. So let's look just briefly at, at what that might mean in terms of what we're doing here on this retreat. What does it mean to embrace dukkha? Dukkha is usually translated as suffering, but when we look at how the term is used, it means pretty much the totality of our experience of this life. The experience we're having now is called dukkha. Now that doesn't mean that it's painful the whole time. In fact, sometimes it's rather pleasant. Uh, sometimes it's neither particularly pleasant or unpleasant. But all of that falls under the rubric of dukkha. We might think of thinking of dukkha perhaps as acknowledging that life has a tragic dimension. That even our greatest joys won't last. That even the most... Uh, uh, rich and interesting life will succumb to aging and death. It's that dimension. It's not the simple, rather simplistic notion of it's all painful, which is blatantly untrue, but rather the life we experience is one in which there is tragedy, there is suffering, there is birth, sickness, aging and death. But the important thing is not to get caught up in arguments as about whether life is suffering or not. The important thing is when dukkha presents itself to us, as pleasure or pain or whatever, we embrace it. We fully know it. The Buddha defines this fully knowing as um, a kind of radiant equanimity. In other words, being able to be with what's going on without attachment, without aversion, without our habitual confusions, a kind of clarity of mind, which is very much what we're trying to do on this retreat. We're trying to ground our experience in the breath, in the body, in sensations, in feelings. This is embracing dukkha embracing life. We're likewise opening ourselves up with receptivity to listen, to hear, not just our own experience, but to bear witness to the suffering of others. That the embracing of Dukkha is not just about me, it's about everyone. It's about all of life. And so the reason so much emphasis is put on the cultivation of mindfulness, the cultivation of, of listening as we've been teaching on this retreat, is these are strategies or ways of opening ourselves up totally to the condition we are in and the condition that all living creatures are in. And tomorrow we'll go on to questioning, which again is, just, is another way of opening ourselves, of refining our attention to the existential condition of all life. 
So what we're doing is the practice of the first of the four of dukkha. And the more that we ground our experience in such a perspective, the more that our habitual um, attractions and aversions, compulsions, distractions, all of this uh, reactivity begins to lose its raison d'être. It it, it simply doesn't, as it were, um, appear particularly relevant anymore. As in that passage by Lucretius, when we really begin to open up to the world, we become more and more amazed that it's here at all. That, in a way, becomes enough. We don't need anything more than that. We don't need to be chasing after stimulation or fame or status. We begin to realize that just to embrace the condition of life itself is somehow deeply enriching and deepening. And so, as I understand it, the more that we cultivate this perspective, the more our relationship to ourselves and to the world begins to change. We get less and less caught up in thinking that we might increasingly feel to be petty and slightly absurd. And a lot of our distractions and our wandering thoughts can certainly tell us something about ourselves, but very often what they tell us is that we're preoccupied with often rather trivial things. We're somehow shying away from an engagement with life and retreating to a kind of fantasy world, a sort of dream, sort of daydream. And so it's difficult because that's how we're kind of conditioned to react and respond in that way. But the more that we come to embrace this situation, the more the mind begins to find a certain uh, tranquility, a certain clarity. Of course, it might also open us up to things that we've been avoiding, things that we haven't really been paying attention to. They may, may even be quite painful things. Maybe something that happened to us in our childhood or something, that, a bereavement or something. That this practice is one that opens the, the heart, opens the body, opens the mind. And we come into a rather more sane, contemplative relationship with life. And this then leads, as, the, as, the, as that grasping reactivity begins to fall away, it leads to moments of deep stillness and peace in which we're no longer driven by those imperatives and those instincts. It may not last long, but such moments are a glimpse of nirvana itself. And this is the third of the four. Experience the stopping of craving. Now, I think the, the word experience in Pali is satchikata, which means something like, see it with your own eyes. In other words, when we experience moments of deep stillness, 
and focus and openness, then we need to affirm and celebrate that possibility. Because that's the opening of a dimension within ourselves from which we can live from, let's say, a deeper pitch. So that stopping is what opens up the possibility of living unconditioned by greed and hatred and confusion. And such a life is what the Buddha calls entering the stream of the Eightfold Path, which is the way we see and think and speak and act and work and apply ourselves and pay attention and concentrate. But what we pay attention to, what we concentrate on, is of course life itself. Our experience in our bodies, in the world, whatever's going on, we come back to the first of the four, dukkha. And the deeper we go into that, the more we allow ourselves to let go of the grasping petty mind, experience further moments of stopping, which open up further vistas of this path. So what we have, in fact, is a feedback loop. We don't have a, um, a linear path with a final goal of enlightenment, which is often how it's presented. Long, long, arduous path. At the end of the day, you'll reach the holy grail of enlightenment and then bingo. But rather we have an image of this, uh, this feed-forward loop, let's say, that's constantly, as it were, in motion, constantly, in a way, seeking to deepen and enhance that process as it proceeds. Once again, suggesting very strongly that um, the path, in a way, is the goal itself that this loop is actually the practice now and in what will follow. And arguably, I would suggest, a framework from, for living our lives right up until the end. And we don't need to believe in some sort of ultimate reality that we might break through to one day, but rather be content with simply embracing our life, letting go of what in a way hinders or obstructs us from living fully. You see, the real problem with craving, as I understand it, is not that it causes suffering. Obviously, it does a lot of the time. But I feel that in this model, the problem with craving is that it keeps us stuck going round and round and round it prevents us from opening up to another way of living. That's the problem with craving and grasping and greed and hatred. All the baddies in Buddhism are considered to be negative or problematic, not because they are intrinsically bad things, but because they stop our life from flowing. They stop us or they prevent us from 
entering a stream of a way of life, a path that leads into an unknown future rather than just keeps repeating what we already know. So that's where I'll stop uh, today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.